characters pull you in as the movie progresses. Brian Cox's monologue toward the end says it all. Surprisingly emotional. That's right, an audience review of the new movie in theaters right now called Mending the Line. Rather than give you my review, I'll have one of the actors from the movie on the podcast. That's right, Patricia Heaton is our new this week. Our wild card, the great Jennifer Esposito. I've loved her since Spin City. Her new film is called Fresh Kills. It plays the Tribeca Film Festival this week. She stars in it. She wrote it. She produced it. She directed it. An incredible story around the movie, as she'll tell you. She made up for Peanuts. So look forward to that. By the way, Patricia Heaton, she's got stories about Ray Romano, our former guest here on Cinephile. Of course, many years. They worked together. Everybody loves Raymond. She's an Emmy Award winner. She's also got great sports stories. Talks about Art Modell, son of a sports writer. So Heaton and Esposito, two great actresses. And to keep the female theme going, as far as our old movies are concerned, I figured I'd dip back in a couple of Monica Bellucci classics. Also, a recent guest here in Cinephile, Malena and Irreversible, a one-two punch that will make you fall in love with the Italian bombshell. As always, it's great to have you with us here on Cinephile. Go to Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review. You're wondering right now what happened to Chris Cody. Well, I had enough of him, quite frankly. He never watches the movies. His, His film knowledge is just porous. Couldn't care less. And I totally get it. He's overwhelmed, so put him in the penalty box. Chris is out. No, and all, all kidding aside, he, he is on assignment right now. He's very busy for Metal Arc. He is following his beloved Florida Panthers. Good for him. I'm glad Chris is making the trip to Vegas. Thank God they won game three, so at least they can go to a game five. Roy also gets a trip. They can hang out with Steve Levy. Levy, by the way, was terrific on uh, God Bless Hockey with Stu Gotts and Roy and Billy. Make sure you listen to that. I'm never going to text Billy again, though. I have a very hard, uh, hard and fast rule here. As you've heard me complain about Cody, the fact he doesn't respond to texts or emails, I'll give you two and that's it. I've now texted Billy twice, praising him for things he's done. Stuff on the show, stuff on this podcast. Like, hey, you're so funny. This is so great. No response. So the hell with him. Uh, Roy is tremendous at responding. I texted him. He's the best. I hope Florida keeps winning for Roy. And I texted Steve Levy. And I gave him my feedback on his job on Stugatz's podcast. Levy also very much appreciated the feedback. Stugatz, by the way, is also in, uh, he's in purgatory. He responds like one every two. So I made it to stop texting him as well. Anyways, Cody on assignment. So... I'm just going to power through. As I mentioned, we'll start with the new, Mending the Line. New film here. Um, I thought it was really well done. I don't want to say too much because you're going to listen to the review now, but the interview, I should say. But it's it's a really well-made movie, and it's about PTSD. It's about a soldier. It's about fly fishing, and it stars the wonderful Patricia Heaton. Enjoy this interview. Well, Patricia Heaton has been a terrific actress for a long time. She's, of course, a multi-Emmy award winner. You know her work from Everybody Loves Raymond. We've had Ray Romano on the podcast previously, and now she's in a new film called Mending the Line, starring Brian Cox, and it's an excellent film. I encourage you to check it out in theaters now. Patricia, great to see you. Congrats on an excellent new film. Thanks, and thanks for having me. So what I think was really fascinating about this was the subject matter. Um, You know, for those who are unaware, it's a Marine trying to cope to civilian life and finding the blessings and really the spirit of fly fishing. And Brian Cox, we all know and love from Succession, was just wrapped up. Uh, He is the the expert kind of in this field, and he kind of takes him under his wing. So the obvious question, how big a fly fisher woman is Patricia Heaton? Well, oddly enough, I've spent the last 10 years going to Montana at least twice a year. And done a lot of fly fishing. Um, it's a place that our, our family uh, spent Christmases and then summers there. So um, uh, I actually had some experience. I didn't get to do any in this movie, but I was very interested in the subject matter. And I just know from experience just how health giving 
fly fishing can be. You know, it's it's quiet. You hear the water gurgling. You're in nature. You hear birds. You have to really be calm and quiet in order to fly fish successfully. And so you uh, kind of have to calm your mind, right? And so it makes sense that fly fishing is something that would be, you know, really helpful in in healing. Yeah. Again, your character is playing the therapist. You're counseling the young man, trying to help him, you know, kind of rehabilitate his life and get over what he's been through. But I thought those are some of the best passages of the film is when Brian Cox is speaking to him, exactly what you're describing. Why is fly fishing important? What is it about it? What the healing nature? And it's clearly made from a filmmaker who knows that world. Like even things like, where's the fishing pole? He's like, it's a rod. You know, this is the line. This is like, there's certain <laughs> verbiage that only if you're a fly fisherman, you would know, right? Yes. Oh, well, and I also think, you know, this is what writers do and, you know, not to go all, you know, strike on you or anything. <laughs> you know, writers, even if they don't know, they spend a lot of time researching, right? It's not just writing the script. It's everything that goes on before and after, you know, doing the research and then afterwards honing that script and doing different passes. And, you know, the writer's just done a magnificent job in creating these characters. And it's an important topic. It's seen through the eyes of, you know, these military veterans, one from Afghanistan, played by Sinqua Walls, and then, of course, Brian Cox, is a Vietnam vet. Um, but, you know, mental health is an issue for all of us, uh, especially since the pandemic, it's kind of come to the forefront. Finally, um, it's super important because when you don't deal with your mental health, um, you know, tragic things can occur at the worst. And at the, at the best, you know, you're not necessarily operating and flourishing as fully as you could if you have some trauma that you haven't dealt with. So it's just as important as I've told my boys, you know, going to, to the dentist going to your doctor, going to a physical therapist, you need to take care of your mind and your emotions also. Yeah, and I feel like we're now at a point that that's definitely gotten much more importance. People can understand that, but I I still don't know. Like, I think there's definitely more awareness, and I'm with you, certain people can do it, but I think it's easier if you tell somebody, I broke my leg, I need two months off work. Or if you say I have mental health issues, I need a month, they're like, "Eh, can you make it a week? Like, we're we're still not at that point yet. We're we're progressing. That's right. We're not there yet. That's correct. Um, as far as your character, you're playing a therapist. Did you do any uh, specific work as far as yeah, working with veterans? I actually, yeah, I actually uh, had a, some great conversations with a VA doctor, and she was very helpful in just sort of, you know, painting the scene for me and painting what, what her life is like working with veterans. And, and, you know, also my husband, David Hunt, and I are big supporters of the Gary Sinise Foundation. And Gary works with vets, not only building homes for disabled vets, but, you know, encouraging and helping to resource, you know, mental health uh, um, treatments for veterans and, and kind of promoting that. Because I think for especially in the military, you know, there's this idea that would ruin your career, just as you talked about, like trying to take off work that, you know, a lot of vets don't want to have that on their record. And I think the military is actively trying to change that because, listen, you want healthy-minded people in the military and you want to help them deal with their trauma when they come out. It's a whole different world. They have a different identity in the military. It's a different kind of society that they operate in. And, you know, even if you haven't um, experienced heavy trauma, just from leaving that and going back into civilian life, it's a big transition and we all need help 
making those big transitions. It's a small scene, but I thought it was so illuminating when um, the main character, like he just hears a bang and he immediately like instinctively jumps down and it's just like a folding chair being slapped. And to your point, like that, that kind of thing must happen all the time. You know, people can flippantly say PTSD, but it's a real serious issue. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the word trigger has been overused a lot, but in the case of these veterans, that's exactly what happens. And their families too, you know, need help in dealing with their family members' trauma. Let's get to the big kahuna. Brian Cox, you got a good scene in the, in the movie where you get to talk to him one-on-one, offer him a little bit of counseling. Um, he's such a fascinating actor, and I think as a person, because he's, he's obviously been so great for so many movies, and Succession put him back on the map, gave him a role of a lifetime, but yeah. he's also so blunt, and he's just so funny when I see him in interviews. Like, he just lets you know what he thinks, whether it's about method acting or about things in life that are pissing him off. Like, what was it like your interaction <laughs> with Brian Cox? Well, he was so great. You know, my husband and I had met him years ago. I think it was at the Emmys. And he he was the original Hannibal Lecter. I don't know if you remember that in the movie Manhunter, right? And do you remember seeing him in that movie the first time? He was so scary. And so when we saw him at the Emmys, we just were salivating, saying, oh, my gosh, (laughs) you're our favorite actor, blah, blah, blah. Well, that was like over 20 years ago, I'm sure. And when I saw him on set, I was like, Hi, Brian. I don't know if you remember me. And he's like, oh, yes, you and your husband. We had a wonderful conversation. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and when I did that, my scene with him, you know, I, I, I've been doing this for a long time, but I was just so nervous. And I said, my, you know, we did the first take of it. And the director said, okay, that's great. Let's take it again, which is code for you can do better. Um, and... <laughs> And I just, under my breath, I said to Brian, I hate acting so much. And he said, it's the hardest job and nobody but actors know it. (laughs) And I just thought that was so kind of him to sort of, you know, uh, build me up a bit and uh, support me. So he's just a wonderful guy. And of course, he was holding court off camera with all of us as we hung on every word with him talking about doing succession um, I think he had just come from Italy. So it was the, the, the season where they had been in Italy and he had just come from there. And apparently it was really super hot there. It was a real struggle. Um, you know, it looks so, it looks so lavish on, on camera, but apparently it was a little bit tough. So, um, you know, it was just such a joy. I mean, it's, this is a really tough business, but the reason you stick it out is because sometimes you get an opportunity to work with people like Brian Cox. But I love that you're like as geeked out as I would be. Like you're, you're, totally sure, sure, you're, you're an Emmy award winning actress. You've been doing this for decades. You're like so accomplished. And even you're like, oh my God, it's Brian Cox. <laughs> yeah. And he's such a normal guy. He really is just a nice, normal guy. And he doesn't sweat anything. He's just a guy like show up, say your lines, do your job. Very inspiring. Yeah. I was going to say, if I was an actor, I like his approach. Like, just learn the line, yes. stupid. Let's not screw around. And afterwards, we'll go for a drink. Like, let's just, right. let's not complicate things. <laughs> exactly. Um, I like the point you just made there about directing. The code is for A friend of mine once said to me, he was an actor, he said, you know, there's only one direction. It's more or less. That's it. Because that, that's all the direct. I don't need, hey, picture you're a giraffe, this and that. Like, just, just give me a little more, give me a little less. What do you think about the way you like to be directed? I'll even um, just say to the director, if he, he, he keeps trying to explain how he wants it and I don't seem to be getting it, I will just say, just give me the line reading. Tell me exactly how you hear it. Because 
actors have a couple of different jobs. One job is to kind of bring your own spin, bring your interpretation of the character, but it's also to deliver the movie, the character that the director sees in his head, right? And so if I'm bringing my thing and it's not really working for him, I am totally open to saying, just tell me how you want me to say it. Because I can, I can fill that. It doesn't sound like I'm repeating somebody. It's, I, I fill it with reality. But sometimes it's just an inflection that they are looking for that you haven't thought of. And so I think it's really ultimately you want to be in service of the vision of the writer and director. I think that's perfect. And it's so humble because I can imagine so many actors would say, no, no, this is my vision, my interpretation. But you're saying, no, no, you've created this. I'm the vessel to get this message across. And I will do my, like, I'm at the service of the writer and the director. That's like incredibly humble of you. You know, I'm not a writer and uh, I'm working on it, but it's a very special job. And I'm not saying that just because there's a writer strike going on now, but I, I've, I've been doing this long enough to know how that's the bottom line. It has to be in the script before anything else. Um, and I do think that act, sometimes actors bring something and the writer will go, oh, I hadn't thought of it, but that's great. You know, sometimes you'll be doing a scene. I just did a horror movie and uh, it, doing my lines and for out of the blue, I burst into tears in the middle of the line. It wasn't scripted. And we just kept going. We shot it. We finished the scene. And I turned to the director and I said, I'm not sure where that came from. And if it doesn't work, use the other take. But she was like, no, no, I love that. I love that. So, you know, it, you never know. And sometimes the actor will bring something that works better than what's on the page. But it's a, you know, it's a group effort. This works perfectly because uh, Ray Romano, your longtime husband on uh, yeah. Everybody Loves Raymond, we just had on the podcast, you directed a new film called Summer in Queens. And I said to him, are you like one of these classic actors who I've always wanted to do is direct? He said, no, I didn't want to direct. I co-wrote it. And they said, you should direct it. And I said, no, I don't know anything about lenses. They said, no problem. You get a good cinematographer, they can do that. And he That's said, right. well... I don't know how to direct these actors. And he said it was so funny. He's like directing Laurie Metcalf and he's not trying to tell her like, you want to try, like, who are you? Like, you're some stuff going to tell me how to direct? How, how surprised were you that Ray Romano directed a movie knowing Ray as well as you did obviously all those years in the show? Well, it's funny because we just had lunch with him about two weeks ago with him, he and his wife, Anna. And, um, you know, I should have asked him that. I'll ask him that. Because we talked a lot about um, writing it because he co-wrote it. But I know what he means. Um, but you know what? Here's the thing. He, he wrote it. So he know he sees it in his mind. And also he's been acting now for a very long time. And so once you've been doing it, you kind of understand it. And he has the experience. And he is also a sort of very kind and very humble person. So he would never say anything in a way that would be insulting. Like he would always be like, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, but maybe, you know. So I, mean, I think, and I think, again, everybody understands that this is a group effort. It's a collaboration. Everybody wants it to work. Actors want to look good on screen. So I think when you come to it with that spirit, uh, you're, you are normally would be open to hearing, you know, what your director has to say. I want you to do more of a Ray Romano impression now. That was fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, I don't want to ask specific episodes because I know it was a long time ago, but just as a huge baseball fan, I asked Ray about the episode when the Mets came on uh, the, from the 60, 69 Mets. Do you remember that episode at all? You guys basically had almost every major med except for Tom Seaver. I don't know how big a baseball fan you yeah. were, but I remember thinking that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, even though my dad 
was a sports writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer and is in the Football Hall of Fame and covered the Browns and the Indians, I could have cared, couldn't have cared less. <laughs> it was one of those episodes where I'm like, How, when is when is this going to be over? <laughs> Who's this old famous ball player? I couldn't care less. Can we have catering out here? It's a guy. It's totally fine. It's a guy thing. That's fine. That's great. <laughs> um, what's it like then being a daughter of a famous sports writer? Oh, it was wonderful because um, even though he didn't make much money, he always got free tickets to see the Harlem Globetrotters. Like anything that was at the stadium or the arena. So we got to go to the ice capades. We got to go to concerts at Cleveland Stadium. So, um, and if he couldn't get it, the entertainment writer at the Cleveland Plain Dealer could get us tickets. So that was uh, the big, <laughs> the big benefit from that. Art Modell used to be the owner of the Browns way of back course. when, right? Yeah. And at the time he first came to Cleveland, he didn't have any kids and he wasn't married. And so he used to buy Christmas presents for us, like tons of Christmas presents. He would come over to our house on Christmas Day and, 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 and give us all these gifts that his secretary had picked out for us. So that was great. They, you probably couldn't do that now because it would be not ethical, I guess, in this day and age. But, but that's incredible because as you know how vilified he is in Cleveland for moving the team to the Ravens. You're showing a different side of this guy who's been portrayed as a Scrooge by Cleveland fans. Yeah, no, he was very kind. The problem in that situation was that Cleveland would not cough up the money for a new stadium. And if you had been in that old stadium, the stairs were literally vertical. Like you could die trying to get to your seat because the stairs were just like that. And I mean, it was kind of cool, but um, it was old. And my dad, uh, we'd go and visit him in the press box. There was no heat or air conditioning or anything. I mean, it was old. And, you know, the Browns were like Cleveland's identity and they wouldn't cough up for a new stadium. So he moved. So it was, you know, my dad understood. It's how it goes sometimes. Um, you mentioned the writer's strike. I think all of us are just appalled by it. They're not asking for much, right? We just want a little slice of the pie. We don't want AI, this kind of nonsense. I worry because my buddy who's an actress, well, the actress could be next. Give me some optimism yes. in, this, in this nonsense. How do we get out of this? I think that we stick together and we don't, um, we don't give in until uh, they are you know, going to come to the table and be reasonable. How do you have people who are creating your product and you're trying to cut them off at the knees. Well, how, how can you do that? By the way, what, what the writers are asking for is about $17 million out of their, this, you know, the tons, hundreds of millions that they're making. Yeah. Out of this war chest, just want a little piece of the pie. It's, it's crazy. It, yes. Yeah. Hope it gets resolved sooner or later. Uh, you mentioned the horror film. When, when can we see that? What's it called? When's it going to be coming out? It's called the Beldham, B-E-L-D-H-A-M. It's an old English word for witch. And uh, next year sometime it'll come. It's being edited right now. And it was really a fun experience. And last thing you mentioned, you did some writing. I think you said with your husband. How's that been going? Your own scripts? What are you working on? Yeah, just it's really hard. That's why I, I mean, I've always had respect for writers. But now, I, you know, attempting it myself, I'm actually right now just practicing using final draft. Like I'm just trying to think that. <laughs> Once you get the software that. down, you're good. Yeah. Once I get the software down, I've got tons of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Patricia Hayden, an absolute delight. The film is called Mending the Line. It's in theaters now. It's an excellent movie. I encourage you all to see it. As you can see, she's a delightful person. Patricia, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for this. Nice to see you. Okay, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
All right, that was Patricia Heaton. Love the Ray Romano impression. God, she's full of life. Looks fantastic. And I look forward to her horror movie coming out at one point in time. And I also look forward to her writing. As she said, she's got first draft downloaded. That's the first big step. Jennifer Esposito, I've loved since Spin City. She's got a terrific Michael J. Fox story, which she will tell us. She's been in NCIS, Blue Bloods, all that kind of stuff. But she's really excited about Fresh Kills, Mafia movie. She's all over it. Wrote, produced, directed, stars. Take a listen to Jennifer. It's a real pleasure bringing in Jennifer Esposito. I've been a fan of this actress's work for a long time, whether it was Spin City, Blue Bloods, NCIS. She's now showing a different side of herself. I loved her in Somewhere in Queens, Ray Romano's directorial debut. And now she's directing herself. The movie is called Fresh Kills. It's going to be at the Tribeca Film Festival, 16th, 17th, and 18th. Jennifer, so great to see you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. What Thank a multi in it. I mean, I, I stay right through the credits and I watch it and I go, okay, I know she started, obviously I just watched it, wrote and directed, okay, produced it as well. I mean, I, I, paid I, for it. <laughs> <laughs> I catered it. I, I designed that. No, I'm kidding. But yes, no, but like, clear with your Instagram, like people go, we didn't have much money. You made it clear. I'm like, no, no, we had no money on this. Thing. Nothing. This was like tooth and nail. Nothing. Nothing. It was uh, it was a labor of love for many of us, especially myself. <laughs> it, it was um, it was something that I needed to do um, for a very long time. And I finally did it. And uh, I couldn't be prouder of the film. But um, independent filmmaking is uh, is hard to say the very yeah. least. I say, we got no catering. There's no trailer. <laughs> Bring PB&J and and listen. Wear your own clothes. But you see, that's honestly, that's where I started. I started doing independent films, doing plays for like no money. And we did bring our own clothes. Like to me, that is like that's where the real stuff happens. And it, it and it was it was incredible. It was an incredible learning experience to come up in New York in a time when independent films were still independent films. And it was like. Hey, I got the script. I've got an actor. We've got some clothes. Like, and, we, and you made it. And, and it was wonderful. You know, a lot of young people today don't understand that side of it. So, you know, it, it's uh, it is it is it is different. The independent world, because you need you know, big right. stars like, you know, John Cassavetes, Indies, right? Jim Jarmusch. We have oh. no money. That's there you go. Right. There, there you go. go. Because Miramax and 90s became, oh, you'll cast a major actor and also it's an independent movie. I'm like, no, that's that's not an independent movie now. Now you have like Thank you. Thank you. Well, you see, that's what happened to me. I when when my script went around, people were throwing a lot of money at me, like a lot of money, but they wanted a big male lead because that's where the money is. Unfortunately, women don't mean money, which is completely ridiculous. And and that's what was happening. And I just thought, how can I do this? It's all about the women here. So, yeah. So we went on our own. Well, I thought that was interesting. Again, following your Instagram messages and thoughts about it, you said, you know, a lot of the challenges I faced in a female director. And by the way, they didn't all come from men. Like that comes from women as well, saying well, you can't direct. Hundred percent, one hundred. I always say, you know, the biggest culprits in all of this male female stuff sometimes is the women, right. is is because you know we're we're taught there's only one seat at the table, but we forget like let's build our own table, ladies. Let's just build the <laughs> another table. So yeah, it it was tricky. Uh, one of the great aspects of Fresh Kills, you know, I love these mob stories or anything involving that kind of subject matter. And you've got, you know, really great, powerful scenes of 
of violence and family and loyalty, but also great performances. It's so much fun to see Annabella Ciora again. I, mean, I how completely did agree. Yeah. She's great. She's fantastic. I mean, in the young women I found and every everybody, I think across the board, you know, it's it's just you know what it is. It's it's when you when you have well written and, and diverse meaty characters, actors like Annabella, they're they're hungry for it. They're hungry for it. So, yeah, it was it was nice to see her back. I had Ray on the podcast after Somewhere in Queens came out and I said to him, what was it like? directing. And I said, you know, one of these actors always wanted to direct. He said, no. He said, I, I like the idea. It was based on one of my kids. He's got four kids. And he said, I written it in the studio. I said, why don't you direct it? Different than you. You're fighting tooth and nail director. And Ray's being asked to direct. He goes, oh, I don't yes. really want to. And he said, <laughs> one of the challenges was, he goes, like, how am I going to give direction? Like, I'm going to tell Laurie Metcalf, like, that take isn't very good. Like, how do, he goes, and I don't even know the camera angles, like the lenses. I got a DP that could do that. Yeah. So how do navigate that with what Ray's talking about, the cinematography, the lenses, the shooting, but then yeah. also the actors. How did you manage all of that? Because again, you're starring in it just like Ray was. Yeah, no, you know, it, it's funny because in the beginning I was like, oh no, I, I, I'm not going to direct it. And I sat with an executive at Netflix who's a female and she said to me, absolutely not. She said, absolutely not. You have to direct this. This is your vision. This is your story. You must direct it. And I thought, She's right. She's right. Because I, for me, I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I, I already had a man that wanted to direct it. And I just knew it was, you know, here's my script. Let me give me money. I'm going to direct people like go home. And um, so I knew that it was going to be a challenge. But when she said that something clicked and I thought, OK, so I listen, I've always I've been studying character work for 20, 30 years now, but the angles and all that, I really, it was a crash course in filmmaking. And I read and watched and, and listened to everything I can get my hands on. And now I have such a deep love for filmmaking. Hmm. I couldn't even, I couldn't begin. And directing to me, I've, I've taught throughout my career as far as acting, you know, so directing as far as the actors, that was simple. That was beautiful. I, I enjoy that immensely. So explain this stuff to me, because I don't really understand what this means, but this was an article at Deadline about you. And a groundbreaking departure from traditional film financing, the Fresh Kills production will be financed by an offering in the Upstream Exchange, which today announced a $3.5 million initial public offering IPO of securities by Fresh Kills, Inc. Can you tell that a, a money dude who does this wrote that? Because I can't even explain it to you. But what I will say is, listen, we had a whole bunch of wonderful, innovative, creative ideas of how to bring independent filmmaking to to everyone and, and how we can get the public involved. So there was NFTs, there was um, creating a, an IPO. There was a lot of different ideas of how to go about um, a non-traditional way of begging for money first. And then second, you know, going on these crowdfunding where, you know, you'll get a hat. Whereas like if you start to incorporate where you actually sell a share or you sell uh, an NFT, then people come along and can make money. If you succeed, they succeed. So it's a really creative and extremely, I think, will be groundbreaking in the future. It's just people don't understand it yet as yeah. far as in the movie business. So um, that's unfortunate. But I think NFTs and blockchain will will and can change independent filmmaking. To further your point, first feature film financed created by a global group of sand investors. So I got that part. Yeah. Via the it's kind IPO on upstream. And then after that, it starts to lose me. But I, I got your point. The basics is it's yes. a film 
Well, the non-fungible tokens, the NFTs, that gives opportunities related to the film as well as images, videos, content, the casting crew. So listen, the movie itself is very good, but it's also innovative for what you're trying to do. And it makes me think of the fact, I was listening to Paul Schrader the other day. I, I saw his new film, Master Gardener. I loved it. And he said, you know, my movies are not going to make a lot of movies because I've made independent films forever, but I can tell the studio, I'll get you your money back. Like I will make you whole and I'm going to make films that are, are really good. And if you care about excellent movies, I'm going to get you, like I'll get you Oscar Isaac, make the card counter. I can get Ethan Hawke in first reform. We're yeah. not going to make $10 million, but at right. a small I will make you whole. And I think, you know, at the very least, that that's the sell, right? I'm going to make you a great film. Is that not enough in this today's world? No, unfortunately, I don't think it is. But uh, honestly, I think there is a, a wide, wide group of people that don't want to just see the Marvel movie. And there's nothing wrong with them, but they do want other other content. And they want these smaller movies with heart and with with grit and with guts and saying something different. So I think there is a place for, for all of us. And I, I like that saying, yeah, I'll make you whole. We're not going to open it a billion dollars like a Marvel movie. You just can't go up against those things. You've been a terrific actress, as I said, for a long time. What was it like directing yourself? You've got a couple of great scenes, especially with the, the younger characters, again, playing a mother, in which you've got to be stern with them and firm with them. And I just pictured you like acting and then the director's chair going, okay, what do you think? Like, you got to watch the rushes and say one more. Like, how do you do that? You think we had time to watch anything? We did. It was like, I got it. Did I get it? I got it. Let's move. It was like, it was so nuts. But I tell you, I it was actually more difficult than I thought. And the reason being, listen, the character I wrote, I knew uh, it's based on someone I know. It's like I, I had that person that needed to be expelled from my system. But what was difficult, it was like, you know, everything else is coming at me. Like, is this the shot? Is that the shot? What do you think about this dress for the next scene? What do you think about this color for the bathroom? And I was like, yes, no action. And then <laughs> to the scene, it was like, oh my God, I'm a multiple personality right now. It was, it, that was kind of tricky to like really hone in and focus mm -hmm. here instead of looking at it from above that, that was tricky. Yeah. You're just, you're just squashing fires, I feel like, right? As a director, you're just, you're just, that, that's what you're doing. 100%. Why do you think, again, organized crime films, and again, for those who haven't seen it, it's about the loyal women of an organized crime family dominating some of the boroughs of New York City in the late 20th century. What is it about the subject matter that is so appealing? Because I can't get enough of it either. Uh, it's 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 wild to me. And I, I, I really don't know. I can't answer that question. But what what bothered me as an Italian American growing up is that I did grow up around this, but um, I, I never in any of the movies I saw, I never saw the women that I saw. I never saw them really. And, and they're in the background or whatever. And I thought they need a voice. But to me, the film to me is so much more than this mafia kind of genre. It's about, you know, finding a voice in a world that tells you not to have one. That's to me what the movie is about. So it it's really relates to anybody who was born into any kind of slot, whether it be poverty or, or addiction or anything like that. So to me, it's a, it's a broader message. But I felt like that the women of this life need a voice. And I, I don't know the last movie I've seen or, or show where they really depicted a little bit in Sopranos with Edie's character, which was amazing, but yep. never the young, never the young girls, never the young girls. Yeah. Metal Sopranos is a supporting character. You're right. For a reason. Never gets their own episode. I, I will focus on one male who I love, which is Dominic Lombardozzi. He plays okay. your, uh, he's got, he's, tell me about him working. I think he's a terrific actor. 
I, you know, well, like Ray said, like, how do you give Laurie Metcalf, uh, you know, a, 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 a note? And I felt that way with him and with Annabelle. It was like, I've been watching these guys for a long time. They're pros. They know what they're doing. But I will tell you, they ever if you're if you're a good actor, you're open. Right. So to be able to go over and say, Dom, what about this? Or Annabelle, what about this? You know, just tweaking little things right there, because, you know, me being the one who wrote it, I, I know the way. But if they if they're showing me something that I didn't think of, uh, you know, hands off, I'll take it because they're they're pros. Yeah, that's really what you do. Again, you're I know you're being humble, but you cast great people around you. Hopefully they can do the work for you and make it easy for you as well. Fresh Kills at the Tribeca Film Festival, 16th, 17th, 18th. I got to have you since I've been uh I love Spin City, and I just watched the Michael J. Fox documentary, so i got to ask you about Spin City. Give me anything you got on Michael J. Fox. I thought you were great on that show. I love that show. It's so funny. I will tell you, Michael hired me because I was brought in. I was fresh out of school, and I was I was doing, you know, John Patrick Shantley. I was doing, like, heavy stuff in school. Sure. Um, and then here's this comedy, and it was like, wait a minute. This was such a you know, 180. So I, I went in my first audition was with Michael was with the casting, whatever. And I was told, you know, she's not funny. And I was like, no, please, please let me go back. I promise. This is a girl from Brooklyn. I can do this. Trust me. They're like, no, she's not funny. And I find, I got myself back in there and I wound up watching Seinfeld and watching Elaine watching Julia Louis Dreyfus, watching her like the way she was doing things was so much more broad than I was used to. And I went in and did it like her. And I read with Michael and Michael is the one. And later told me he was like, you really remind me of me, which was such a huge compliment to me. And I never forgot it because he said, a lot of the people on the show were just these talented, like Barry Bosch, talented, but they would write down like, like how comedy works. Like after three times, they would say this or they stir the coffee. There were all these things that they did that would hit like button, make a button on mm-hmm. comedy. And I didn't know any of that. I just kind of went with it. And um, and like Michael. So I went with my gut. And that's what he said. He said, you remind me of me. And I just. He was so gracious and lovely. And, you know, he was, you know, back to the future. He was that guy. So I was working with him. It was just, it was thrilling. It was really amazing. That's awesome. Because I remember people, again, you're very pretty. People see, oh, who's this young, pretty actress? But you were funny. Like you said, it's more than just looks. It makes sense that you've had a great career for decades now. So I just, I had to get a Spin City story out of you. Everybody go see Fresh Kills, especially if you're in the New York, New Jersey area. Tribeca Film Festival, 16th, 17th, 18th. I'm assuming it's playing and then looking for distribution. Is that right? We're looking for distribution. Yeah, we're we're going on to Bentonville, Gina Davis uh, Festival in uh, Arkansas. After that, we have a few other festivals coming up. Yeah, it's looking for distribution after that. Yeah, I, you're just grinding right now. Like it's just it's so inspiring. You're this great actress for so many years, and you're just grinding, pouring your heart and soul into this. I hope it's a great, great success for you. Jeff. Thank you. I hope so too. Thank you. All right. Thank you once again to both of them, Patricia Heaton and Jennifer Esposito, bringing the heat here on Cinephile. All right. I want to do a couple of reviews here of uh, Monica Bellucci movies because I still can't believe I got to interview her. I mean, it's just absolutely stunning. So let's talk first about Milena, which is when I fell in love with Monica Bellucci. Amidst the war climate, a teenage boy discovering himself becomes love-stricken by Milena, a sensual woman living in a small, narrow-minded Italian town. 
It is directed by Giuseppe Tornatore. It's co-written by him as well. You know his name because of Cinema Paradiso. This was a follow-up to that. Cinema Paradiso, by the way, I was shocked. One of Andy Katz's favorite movies. When I met him, he told me, he's like, oh, I'm a huge movie guy. I'm like, yeah, sure you are. He's like, I love Cinema Paradiso. I'm like, wow, what else do you like? Il Postino, which is one of my favorite Italian films. So Cinema Paradiso, a film which a lot of people love. I think Milena isn't quite as good, but still has some wonderful moments, and it's really carried by Monica Bellucci. I mean, this whole story is a coming-of-age story in which this kid Giuseppe, who plays Renato, is just obsessed with Milena Scordia, and why wouldn't he be? The whole town is. Wherever Milena goes, Monica Bellucci, the whole town stops and stares, takes their breath. A guy offers his handkerchief. He's, you know, they fan her as she walks the street. It's actually very funny to the level with which she is revered. But ultimately, there comes a dark turn, and... I think it's a really interesting film because it comments on beauty and, you know, sometimes you hate the beautiful. Like the scene where, again, I don't want to spoil it, you should watch the movie. Again, coming of age story, boy falls in love with Milena, wants to talk to her, wants to get to know her, has a relationship with a guy. All of a sudden, other men start showing up. Women in the town think she's a whore, think she's an adulterer, all this kind of stuff. This one scene, she's absolutely ravaged, just horrible. She's beaten by the women. Hair is cut viciously. Her dress is torn. I mean, you know, she's half naked, dusty, dirty. It's just a horrible scene. I remember watching it thinking like, I watched it when I was 22. I'm like, why do the women hate her so much? Why do, why do other women hate beautiful women? What is it? Why do they keep calling her a whore? Bastardo! But the film makes a lot of comments on the beautiful and I think more misperception and how perception versus reality doesn't always line up. And I really like the voiceover in the film. I love Ennio Morricone's score. For me, he's my favorite composer. I know John Williams topped the list for many people. But Morricone, you go back to the Spaghetti Westerns with Sergio Leone, uh, obviously the Untouchable soundtrack. Amazing. I love Morricone. It was great that uh, Tarantino put him in the Hateful Eight, be able to make that score win an Oscar. Anyways, great score here, Milena. And I love the Fubi, not just because of Bellucci, but I'm telling you, it's a, it's a gorgeous film. Makes you fall in love, makes you want to go to Italy right away. Here's some reviews of the film. Stanley Kaufman, The New Republic, a film about Milena herself or travails. The deep-reaching conclusion would have been much more interesting and original, but Tornatore is mired in cliches. Ouch. Mark Savlov of Austin Chronicle. Tornatore has two near-perfect films, working within the body of one mediocre one. Ouch. Come on, Cody. Give me a positive review. David Rooney of Variety. Despite Bellucci's strong presence in a role with little dialogue. Exactly. She just has to look incredible. The central character never really comes alive in any way interesting enough to give her ordeal much genuine pathos. Okay, so I always ask Cody for the reviews. There's three reviews which did not like the movie. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now. Melina's great. You should go watch it. The next movie is Irreversible. I, I don't even know how to categorize this film, so I'll give you the, uh, the blurb first, the plot synopsis. Events over the course of one traumatic night in Paris unfold in reverse chronological order as the beautiful Alex is brutally raped and beaten by a stranger in an underpass tunnel. Could only be written and directed by Gaspar Noé, who's a really you know, enfant terrible of cinema. If you'll recall the Bellucci interview, I mentioned Irreversible. I think I also mentioned Milena, too. I did. But I also mentioned Irreversible. And she said, you know, that film's gotten a little bit of buzz now. There was a 20th anniversary release of it last year. And she said she's very proud of the film. Tough watch, man. It is just a tough watch. First 10 minutes, very hyperkinetic camera. You know, constant shaky cam. At times, you can't even see what's going on. It's distracting. It almost gives you motion sickness. But you see somebody being carried out in a stretcher. So the concept of irreversible, taking a page out of my man Christopher Nolan's memento, is movie starts backwards. So he's going ending to the beginning. Right? Not the first one we've seen. This, as I mentioned, Memento was a few years earlier. But this one's much more intense, visceral, gritty, and grimy. Guy carried on a stretcher. Vincent Cassell, Monica Bellucci is at the time husband. I know they're playing a real-life couple. So what has happened to him? Where is her? 
Then you get to the rape scene, which is just incredibly graphic and tough to watch. I believe, I have to look this up. Somebody can check me on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes. I think they shot it three or four times. Bellucci said afterwards, the guy who raped her like, could not have been nicer. Like He's a very sweet guy. Wanted to make sure she was okay, funny. And then the moment, just, just vile the things he's saying to her. Like, it's just, uh, I mean, I can't even put in words to see how horrifying it is. But obviously, anybody who has a loved one been through this kind of tragedy, it's just, it's horrible. So, as I said, beginning of the scene, guy carried on a stretcher. Scene after that, guy gets his face pulverized with a fire extinguisher. Like, that's probably the second most famous thing about this movie. The first thing is Monica Lucci gets raped in it. Second one is, oh, it starts ending to beginning. Probably the third thing is, remember the fire extinguisher scene? And I, again, I had not seen this movie in 20 years. I watched it again, I'm like, oh my God, this guy just beats the crap out of the fire extinguisher, just turns his face into hamburger meat. You think at this point, why am I going to keep watching this movie? But then a really neat trick by No Way. He gets so bloody and grimy and difficult, and then the movie becomes sweet because you see how this couple first fell in love. You see what first attracted Alex and Marcus to each other. And there's a really great scene, full frontal, by the way. I think I bought the uncut version. Thanks to, the, <laughs> thanks to the Amazon people over in Korea where I got the film. I order, as soon as I popped it in, I see it's in Korea, and I go, what the? i got to change these subtitles. So I'm actually sure how that happened. I just went on online, bought it. Milena, uncut edition, irreversible. Anyways, they're, uh, they're doing a couple of things, right? Both buck naked, playful, flirting, joking, being silly, talking about their lives, doing a couple should be doing at that age. Uh, not only, again, Miss Monica, fully nude, but also Vincent Cassell. So if you're into that too, you get to see his junk dangling a few times. Like, oh, wow, this is a full package here. They really gave themselves over to this art. But it's a sweet scene. And then you get what would be the beginning of the movie given to us as the ending of the movie. Won't spoil it, just to say it makes the story even that much more tragic. It's a, it's a tough watch, and honestly, when I was re-watching it, first time in 20 years, I wasn't sure I'd be able to get through it, because the first 10, 20 minutes are so tough. But after that, I, uh, I actually thought it was a good film. And I agree with this review from Bob Longino of Atlanta Journal of Constitution. A sometimes repellent, yet deeply moving film. Marjorie Baumgarten of Austin Chronicle. Viewers should be warned that irreversible means what it says. Your experience of this movie cannot be forgotten once the die is cast. That is bang on, Marge. And Robert Dennerstein of Denver Rocky Mountain News. There's less to irreversible than meets even the most unblinking of eyes. Monica Bellucci, double bill for our old. Milena, irreversible. I bought both of them. I'm sure you can find them streaming somewhere. Again, support Patricia Heaton. Mending the Line is her new film, starring the great Brian Cox. Cox has one great line in the movie. I forgot to ask her. He says, give this guy an enema. He's full of crap. And he says it in that inimitable Brian Cox way. And for Jennifer Esposito, if you're in the New York, New Jersey area, go watch Fresh Kills, playing at Tribeca this week, 16th, 17th, 18th. Hopefully it gets distribution, and all of you can see it soon. Hopefully the Panthers can win, make this a series, win the Stanley Cup, and hopefully we'll get my guy Chris Cody back again. Thanks so much for supporting us here on Cinephile. Uh, next week we've got a couple of movies coming out. Not sure if I'll get to both. Elemental for the kids, but I'll definitely get to The Flash just to see Michael Keaton once again saying, I'm Batman. And I'll see you at the movies. Mm-hmm.